0: The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bear. Superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference at lunafungicides.com.
1: Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's Farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman.
0: What do trains, tunnels, and California's farmers have to do with each other? The state's ag community is playing a big part in throwing roadblocks in front of Governor Jerry Brown's two pet projects. We have the details. There's more pest quarantine areas declared in California for the medfly and the Mexican fruit fly. We'll tell you where. Thinking about adding solar panels to your farm? We have a report that'll tell you what questions you should be asking yourself. And we have tips on maintaining the health of beehives before almond blossom time. All that, crop reports and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. It wasn't a good week for Governor Jerry Brown's two pet projects here in California, and farmers are involved in both. The estimated cost for the 119-mile first phase of California's bullet train from Fresno to Madera climbed by 35% last week, now totaling $10.6 billion, and that's just for that first segment. Now the entire cost of the project is roughly $67 billion. It was projected to cost $40 billion in 2008 when voters originally approved the bond financing some of the fresh costs stem from trouble acquiring the rights of way for the track in the central valley the authority entered into construction contracts before fully securing the rights of way in all areas from farmers residents and businesses a decision officials said they would not make again and the state may be scaling back its delta tunnels project The Sacramento Bee reports California officials have officially notified potential construction contractors that they're considering limiting the project to one tunnel. Governor Brown's administration has been floating the idea of a downsized tunnel proposal since October when funding problems became increasingly evident. Major farm irrigator Westlands Water District refused to help pay for the $17 billion project, and the Santa Clara Valley Water District said it would only consider participating in a one-tunnel plan. Sacramento Bee reports that the Department of Water Resources may be getting closer to making a definitive decision to convert the California Water Fix Project, also known as the Delta Tunnels Project, to a one-tunnel project. Roger Patterson is the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California's Deputy General Manager. He told the Bee that decisions are going to be made at the end of the month or the first part of February on how they're going to have to move forward with the project. Many environmentalists, delta farmers, and others say the delta tunnels would bring even more harm to the delta, and they aren't mollified with a one-tunnel approach. <music> And another obstacle has been placed in front of the Delta Tunnels project. According to Restore the Delta, San Joaquin County, Sacramento County, the City of Stockton, the City of Antioch, and local agencies of the North Delta jointly prepared and filed a motion asking the State Board to stay the Water Fix hearing for at least 90 days. The stay request is based on recent revelations of unlawful communications between members of the State Board's Waterfix hearing team on the one hand and DWR personnel promoting the Twin Tunnels in the water fix hearing. From
2: tax reform to the waters of the U.S. rule, officials in Washington, D.C. gave farmers and ranchers plenty to cheer about last year. American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall this month told Farm Bureau members at the organization's annual convention that tax reform topped the list.
3: It's thanks to your engagement that Congress passed tax reform last year, giving farmers a new 20% deduction on their business income, doubling the estate tax exemption, and preserving tax credits that farmers depend on and lowering our individual tax rate.
2: Deval says the Waters of the U.S. rule was one of the biggest challenges farmers faced in recent years. The rule would have allowed the federal government to dictate how farmers use their land.
3: Thanks to your engagement and thanks to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, the old rule is being reconsidered and we are urging the agency to propose a new rule that draws clear lines and protects water without regulating our farmland.
2: Other wins include an executive order to reduce federal regulations and improve access to federal grazing lands. Deval says more grassroots advocacy by farmers and ranchers will continue those successes this year on issues like immigration reform.
3: We need Congress to pass a bill so that we can keep from losing ag production to other countries where they have better access to labor. We can have an impact if we engage grassroots leaders like you are transforming national policies to make agriculture stronger every day
2: michael clements
3: nashville
0: in the wake of the deadly mudslides that hit santa barbara county last week officials have begun to gauge the impact to agricultural operations According to the California Farm Bureau News, the California Cut Flower Commission says a number of flower farms in the Carpinteria Valley have been affected, either directly from the slide or indirectly through the loss of power to greenhouses as well as through road damage. Groups representing growers of other crops say they're still trying to assess any losses.
2: The western water season, the time Mountain snowpack accumulations, build spring and summer water reservoir and irrigation supplies, is nearing its halfway point. And USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says based on what has happened so far this winter and what perhaps lies ahead.
4: We start to really get concerned if we don't see a significant pattern shift.
2: The referred to pattern shift attributed primarily to La Nina, which usually means warm, dry conditions in the south and cooler, wetter conditions in the north. Rippey says that is indeed the case for the northern one-third of the country so far this season with abundant moisture. However,
4: unfortunately, not all of that has fallen in the form of snow, so our precipitation numbers are a little bit better than our snowpack numbers, which are merely adequate across the northwest.
2: And moving southward, the snowpack conditions appear progressively worse. For instance,
4: from California's key watershed areas in the Sierra Nevada, as of early January, just two inches of liquid contained in the Sierra Nevada snowpack
2: where 30 inches of snowpack by April 1st equates to an average water year.
4: As for the desert
2: southwest,
4: we see little if any snow by early January across the southwest.
2: A notable example of this lack of precipitation is Albuquerque, New Mexico, where there has not been a measurable amount of water over a three-month period. The last time that occurred in Albuquerque was in 1956. Rippey says there is one positive in terms of western water supplies going into the spring.
4: Western water supply is still reasonably good. The reason we have for that is that we had from Canada to Mexico a superb winter wet season in 2016-17. Reservoirs, for the most part, are still brimming from the abundant 2016-17 winter wet season. The only major concern would be across the southwest, specifically New Mexico, where we continue to see somewhat below average reservoir storage and we've seen little or no precipitation so far this winter wet season.
2: However, if La Nina remains strong through the remainder of the western water season, especially in Southern California and the desert southwest,
4: then we would get into trouble because we wouldn't have any snow to melt off to replenish what is used during the agricultural irrigation season. I'm
2: Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: Here's this week's California crop report. Rice looked good both in terms of stand as well as weed control. Fields that were planted earlier in the season had signs of good growth, but most fields were irrigated due to the lack of rain to maintain growth. Winter forage crops such as wheat, barley, other cereal grains, and forage mixes continue to be planted and seed shipments are being received. Irrigation was still necessary to maintain growth of those plantings that have germinated. The alfalfa, it's growing well. Pruning continues in stone fruit orchards and vineyards. The persimmon harvest is ongoing. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards are being removed and prepared for replanting. Winter dormant sprays are applied in some orchards. Naval orange harvest is ongoing. Pummelos were harvested. Olive growers continue to prune the groves. And there's pruning going on in nut orchards in California this week. Some older orchards are being pushed out and the ground was prepped for planting. Herbicides were applied in some pistachio groves. Fields are being prepped and planted with winter vegetable crops. Lettuce benefited from the recent rain, and the growth looks ideal. Land preparation was ongoing for tomatoes. The spring carrot crop has not emerged, while winter carrots were scheduled to be planted in two weeks. Weed control was done on organic onions, while conventional onions were continued to be irrigated. The garlic stand is established, but it could benefit greatly with some rain to keep growing. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture were reported to be primarily in poor to very poor condition. Recent precipitation was beneficial to forage development, but conditions remain poor until more growth occurs. Supplemental feeding of livestock is ongoing. Sheep are grazing on idle cropland on stubbled fields as well as dormant alfalfa fields. Beehives are overwintering in Fresno County, and they are being given a supplemental feeding. (laughs) Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. A couple of new pest quarantine areas in California. A portion of San Mateo County has been placed under quarantine for the Mediterranean fruit fly, the medfly, following the detection of two medflies within the city of Half Moon Bay. The quarantine area measures 56 square miles. In Southern California, a portion of San Diego County has been placed under quarantine for the Mexican fruit fly, following the detection of seven flies within the city of Encinitas.
5: One of the biggest reasons that we are the envy of the world is gathered right here in this room representing the farmers of America. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue at the American Farm Bureau
6: convention in Nashville the other day. Some of those farmers may be a little nervous about the ongoing
5: NAFTA negotiations because as Perdue put it... We know, we know that trade is a key to for rural and farm prosperity. Canada and Mexico continue to be major markets for United States exports. So a successful completion and improvement of the NAFTA negotiations remains a top priority of this administration. But to get a deal, we need all sides to seriously roll up their sleeves and get to work. Purdue said
6: the U.S. has put out some proposals to modernize NAFTA and address some long-standing
5: issues. And critically for agriculture to address key sectors left out of that original agreement, specifically dairy and poultry tariffs in Canada. Now, we want to ask our partners to the north, our negotiating partners to step up, engage in meaningful conversation so we can get the deal done For them and for you.
6: The Canadian Dairy Program supports its dairy operators by putting tariffs on dairy product imports so supply can be controlled. Prices to dairy operators can be supported. This has kept some U.S. dairy products out of the Canadian market, but from the Canadian point of view.
7: We have in, in the supply management system a very good system. It's worked very well for our consumers. It's worked very well for our farmers. And
6: Canadian Ag Minister Lawrence McCauley told reporters at the Farm Bureau Convention.
7: We have indicated quite publicly, as a government, again indicating I'm not at the table, but we are fully supporting the supply management system. All countries in agriculture have certain things that they're pretty careful about or protect.
6: And so in a few days yet, another round of NAFTA negotiations will take place in Montreal. And despite the many thorny issues facing
5: the negotiators, Suddy Perdue says he's quite confident that we will have a fair NAFTA agreement that works well for our economy including the agricultural sector.
6: The next round of talks begins on the 23rd of this month. Negotiators have set a deadline of the end of March to get a new NAFTA trade deal worked out. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
0: Sacramento County is home to two agricultural detection canines. These USDA-trained dogs, along with their handlers, are a first line of defense in protecting California's valuable agricultural industries. The dogs enter parcel facilities and alert the human inspectors to packages that might have agricultural goods inside. Sacramento County's Agricultural Commissioner Julie Jensen recently told the Board of Supervisors about the effectiveness of this program.
8: Our department continues to take our charge of protecting California agriculture very seriously. We use some of the most effective resources that continue to keep out exotic invasive pests that could devastate our agricultural industry. Due to the huge success of our detection dog team in intercepting invasive pests at the U.S. Postal uh, Center there in West Sacramento, we were awarded additional funding in the Farm Bill that allowed us to add a second detection dog team to our toolbox. We now have both Jennifer and Dozer there on the left, and Mariah and Cairo on the right, working to keep out destructive pests. In 2016, they sniffed out 126 shipments that contained invasive, harmful pests. And not to be outdone, our, actually, our human inspectors are still doing a good job, and uh, they continue to work diligently inspecting our high-risk pathways. These numbers indicate the number of shipments and the number of interceptions of invasive pests in those shipments. As we have witnessed from our Japanese beetle infestations, just the establishment of a small population of one of these pests that we intercepted could result in eradication costs in the millions, as well as the inconvenience and stress on our residents to eradicate these pests, and quarantines that could negatively impact our businesses. And, and that's only the eradication project, we're not even talking about if they were to become established, the millions that it would cost, and the additional toxic pesticides that would be used in our environment to try to control these pests if they actually were to get established. So this is a very, we take this very seriously, very important part of our job, our duties
0: during that meeting supervisor Don Natoli who represents much of southern Sacramento County and its vast array of farming operations asked Jensen about the origin of the pests found at inspection time
4: and if I could just ask you too, then on the in 2016 where they sniffed out you know, in 126 different instances shipments that contained invasive pests where were those are those coming from other states they coming from out, out of the out of the country or where both both
8: both florida is a huge We get a lot from Florida, but we also get a lot from Guam and Puerto Rico, uh, a lot of other countries. And the ones where, the ones that are actually, um, Most likely to carry pests are the non-commercial shipments. So it's a, you know, part of the family has moved here and they're missing the foods that mama used to make. And so, and they can't find some of the things here to continue to make those foods. And so from home, they'll send them the produce. And unfortunately, along with it, they also send the pests that are native to that area and not here. So, yeah, both other states and other countries.
0: In 2016, 126 shipments were found to harbor pests known to be devastating to agriculture, stopping them from entering Sacramento County and the surrounding areas. The most notable pest interceptions by the canine crew were scale insects, which were found in 49 percent of suspicious packages containing plant material. Some of the more infamous pests found in 2016 were the Asian citrus psyllid,
2: the West Indian fruit fly, and the disease cedar apple rust. It may be perhaps one of the more surprising findings of a recent survey conducted on opioid addiction in rural America. At least it is to National Farmers Union President Roger Johnson. For three out of four farmers, farm workers, folks who are directly involved in production agriculture, to know someone personally, to have someone in their family or to be personally impacted themselves by this opioid addiction crisis is really an astounding statistic. That result, from a joint American Farm Bureau Federation-National Farmers Union survey, is also something shared between Roger Johnson, American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duval, and the assistant to the Agriculture Secretary for Rural Development, Ann Hazlett. These three farm leaders spoke recently at a Farm Bureau panel on the rural opioid crisis and how to address it. Duvall points out that, yes, farm families have been impacted by this epidemic, but consider...
3: When we talk about farm families, we're really talking about the farm families that help us on our farm, that are hired by us, and a lot of those people don't have the resources or they don't have the ability to go out and find help, and we have just as big a responsibility to them, morally but also from a liability standpoint.
2: And Hazlett says rural America, specifically the ag community, has been impacted to a greater degree, due in part to what she calls a unique set of dynamics.
1: In rural America, we still have a lot of jobs that are labor intensive, long hours, and when someone is hurt, they often need something to continue to be able to work. In rural America, we have isolation, where people are geographically isolated and more and more with the busyness of life, maybe those relationships that were one time the base of the community are not as strong as they were. If activity in the area picked up we have limited law enforcement resources to help crack down on illicit drugs and lastly i think when people do fall in when they need assistance we have a lack of mental and behavioral health and treatment facilities resources to help them
2: Yet all three panelists agree that what is also unique about farm and rural communities is their ability to come together and help when there is a time of need for one of their own. It is that mindset that brought Zippy Duval, Roger Johnson, and their respective organizations together to create an online awareness campaign about and provide resources and information to help those struggling with opioid addiction called Farmtown Strong.
3: If we can get people to open up, and if we can get people to talk about it and get the awareness of it, then we can get them some help. This issue needs to be viewed as someone is hurt, not something that folks need to be ashamed
2: of. More information about the Farmtown Strong campaign and resources to help those dealing with opioid addiction can be found at this web address, www.FarmTownStrong, all one word.org. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
0: Here's your weekly weed report, and there is trouble for owls in the northern part of California. 70% of northern spotted owls and 40% of barred owls have tested positive for poison, rat poison. The study is the first published account of anticoagulant rodenticides in northern spotted owls, which are listed as a threatened species under the Federal and State Endangered Species Act. The study area encompassed Humboldt, Mendocino, and Del Norte counties. But according to the study's lead author, Morad Gabriel of the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, the owls are not directly eating the rat poison.
7: The species is signifying now that the food web is contaminated within this environment because the owls are not actually consuming the bait themselves. They're actually only consuming contaminated prey.
0: The study was published in Avian Conservation and Ecology. It showed that seven of the 10 northern spotted owls collected tested positive for rat poison, while 40 percent of 84 barred owls collected also tested positive for the poison. One of the big problems, according to Morad, is the lack of enforcement.
7: If we have only a handful of law enforcement officials or biologists inspecting these sites, it raises some concern. Morad notes
0: that an estimated 4,500 to 15,000 private cultivation sites are in Humboldt County alone, yet the county has seen legal permits for only a small fraction of them. That means that there are thousands of unpermitted private grow sites with no
9: management oversight. Bison right now is on fire in the U.S. We are a growth business.
1: That was Dave Carter, the executive director of the National Bison Association. It's no surprise that he is bullish on the American public's taste
9: for bison. They've discovered that not only is it a lean, nutritious red meat, not only is it sustainably raised and it's illegal to use growth hormones in bison, and I always say what could be more sustainable in a food system than the animal that's been part of this environment for the last 5,000 years, but they're also discovering it's a delicious meat. Just how delicious? As they've taken that first bite and uh, discovered the taste, they're coming back looking for more, which has us scrambling right now because the demand has outstripped our supply. Our marketers right now are reporting that they're not able to meet their current demand, let alone introduce new customers to the product.
1: Which he says is why his organization is working to get more people into the bison business.
9: That's why we've been working very closely with folks at USDA. We were just back visiting with the folks at the Farm Service Agency, for example, offering to give them some success stories of producers that have used the beginning farmer or the youth loans to get started in the bison business and to provide them with the resources to be able to reach out and help us bring more producers into the business. His group has been focusing on encouraging smaller-scale bison producers. And then we're in the midst right now of administering a multi-year farmer's market promotion program grant for our smaller producers to be able to help them to expand their farmer's market business, but also to offer the opportunities for agritourism.
1: And there are efforts to expand demand for American bison meat
9: overseas, too. The Foreign Ag Service has been doing a tremendous job for us to try and open up some markets that have been closed to bison so that we can continue to, to grow the demand side.
1: Americans eat so little bison compared to beef that the National Agricultural Statistics Service does not keep track of overall bison consumption in the country.
9: We did the math, and as near as we can tell, the per capita consumption is 0.08 pounds per person per year. So, you know, we like to say if we uh, tripled the size of the bison business, everybody could have a quarter pounder once a year. He is emphatic that bison and beef are not the same things. I always say the beef does the best. Best job in the world of being beef. So why would we want to be another version of beef? We're bison. We're a different product. We're kind of in a different marketplace. In other words, so we will always be a niche product. We never see ourselves being a mainstream commodity.
1: This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington D.C. There are plenty
0: of places in California that are already existing to locate new solar energy facilities without putting them on prime farmland. That, according to a new study from the University of California. Researchers identified opportunities for locating solar plants on Central Valley land that really isn't suitable for farming or on rooftops of agricultural facilities as well as other places. A co-author of the study says it's important to explore such alternative sites for solar development in order to conserve
6: farmland. Science today credits the sun as powering just about every natural thing on the planet, and now for a growing number of farmers. It
9: powers the whole farm.
6: David Hughes, it powers his farm. He's a Virginia turkey producer who has put in solar panels and all the trimmings to provide electricity. Wasn't cheap, but he says it'll pay for itself in seven years.
10: Myself and my lender, we looked at it, and it made perfect sense. But at the same time, it's something that doesn't necessarily work for every farm, every
6: farm you need. Ohio State University Extension energy expert Eric Romick says before you let anybody talk you you into buying a solar system, do a lot of homework first. Do a good energy audit of your farm. See where you can conserve power. Studies on dairy operations show that uh, making more efficient use of power can cut electricity use by as much as 24%.
10: Now, instead of a dairy farm needing a 100-kilowatt solar project, maybe they only need to buy a 75-kilowatt solar
6: project. Or maybe no solar project, but energy efficiency, that's just the first step if you're still considering solar. Power our farm with a solar system, save on electric bills, and be green. Sounds great, but before we take the plunge...
10: We just need to make sure we do our homework before we make those decisions.
6: And Ohio State University Extension energy expert Eric Romick says there's a lot of homework to do. Besides doing all you can right now to use power more efficiently, Romick says you need to do a lot of research on your current electricity situation and ask and answer a lot of questions, for example...
10: What are you paying for electric... You know, what's the value of electricity that your system generates and how do we accurately assess that? cost for insurance, cost for operations and maintenance, the property tax, sales tax, taxable, non-taxable income.
6: Now, all of this may sound trivial,
10: but when you put all this stuff together, it it can be the difference between a four-year payback and a nine-year payback.
6: Or no payback.
10: Yeah, we, we see that as well.
6: Which would be catastrophic considering these systems can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. We look at other considerations in a future report. David Hughes is a Virginia turkey producer whose entire farm is powered by solar panels. I
9: like the feeling of reducing my dependence on fossil
10: fuels and being green. No emissions. I I like all that. That's nice, but... We need to help farms to make sure that it makes good economic sense for their business operations. That's
6: part of Eric Romick's job. Energy expert, Ohio State University Extension. And whether solar makes sense for a farm depends on a lot of things, including how much you're paying now for electricity, how much you use, your situation with income, debt, capital, the potential system cost, the availability of Grants to help with that, how long before the system pays for itself in savings, if at all. Luckily, though, there's some help in sorting all of this out from Sam.
10: System Advisor Model.
6: It's a government online program. You plug in the answers to all those questions and more data, and among other things... It
10: gives you your payback that's based on a detailed discounted cash flow analysis.
6: So if you're considering going solar, Romick says do your homework, then go online, search for System Advisor Model. System Advisor Model. In the last couple of years?
10: There has been uh, a lot of interest in solar energy to power farms.
6: And it's growing. Ohio State University Extension energy expert Eric Romig. A lot of that new interest in solar electricity has been generated, get it, by a shocking, don't get it, drop over the last few years. And the average cost for a farmer to put in solar panels and all the associated gear. In
10: 2010, the installed cost per DC watt was $5.36. That number dropped in 2017 to $1.85 per DC watt.
6: A drop of over 65%, but even at these prices... I
10: mean, that's $186,000 for a 100-kilowatt system. Right. So, yes, significant investments that that are being made.
6: Romick says if you are considering an investment in solar for the farm, investigate, analyze every aspect of that potential investment with an eye toward whether it'll ever pay for itself. And if so, when? If it doesn't cost out, then Romick says maybe you should short circuit the idea. Concentrate on investing in things that will give you more efficient use of electricity on your farm. Are you a farmer toying with the idea of generating your own farm's electricity using solar systems? If so,
10: make sure that it makes good economic sense.
6: Ohio State University Extension expert, Eric Romig, says although solar installation costs have dropped 65% in the last seven years, it's still a big investment that may not cost out for some farmers. Trying to figure all that out can be complex, and that's why he's going to be part of a six-part webinar series being hosted by Michigan State University.
10: And we're gonna do one session each Thursday, Starting on January 18th.
6: Each session dealing with a different aspect of figuring out if solar is right for you. Sessions include...
10: Estimating system production. Estimating the system cost. Forecasting the value of your electricity. Understanding incentives. Considerations for conducting a financial analysis.
6: And how to use a special online tool to help with all that. For more about cost and so on, go online. Search Ag Solar Webinar MSU. Ag Solar Webinar MSU. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington.
0: Did you know the Sacramento Valley is responsible for approximately one half of the nation's honey bee industry? how can farmers help ensure the success of that beehive and all those bees that may be sitting on their property for a while what about beekeepers what can they do to strengthen their colonies we're talking with a bee expert joe connell he served in butte county for thirty-four years his specialty is almonds olives citrus ornamental landscape plants his work with uh, almond growers included research on pest and disease management, pruning, frost protection, irrigation, new rootstocks and varieties, and of course timely harvest. And Joe, I, I guess it makes a lot of sense for farmers and beekeepers to uh, pay attention to their hives because uh, that's where the money is. Uh, you're paying good money for all those bees to do a critical job.
7: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know the the uh almond farmers and uh, beekeepers are very much dependent on each other the the almond farmer needs the beekeeper to bring hives into his orchard for cross pollination of the crop and to set a good almond crop and the and the beekeeper uh, really needs the almond farmer as well because that's the earliest uh, some of the earliest bloom and pollen available, which helps the beehives begin to build up early in the spring. And uh, they normally leave an almond orchard stronger than they were when they came to the almond orchard. So uh, it's a really good thing for the honeybee industry uh, as well. And, of course, they also receive uh, income for the pollination service that they provide to the almond grower. So uh, it's really a, a synergistic relationship between the two uh, and, and both benefit when they do things well.
0: Farmers are really good at kicking tires of tractors when they go shopping, when they go shopping for bees. Uh, w- what's a good colony?
7: Well, as far as colonies are concerned, um, for pollination purposes, we like to see um, a beehive that has somewhere between 6 and 12 frames of, of uh of bees uh, per colony uh, normally in a bee box there's nine frames and uh, you'd like to have at least six to twelve of the, uh, six to twelve in the total colony covered with bees uh, about an eight frame colony is probably ideal uh, we know that um, that a smaller colony uh, has to keep the brood nest warm and if we have um, uh, adverse weather they they tend to keep the bees in the box to try to keep the brood nest uh, warm enough if it's cold outside and they can't can't fly if it's, if it's marginal conditions. If you have a stronger colony it allows the honeybees to fly under a little bit more adverse conditions because they have enough bees to keep the brood nest warm at the same time send foragers out into the field to cross pollinate the almond crop so that's why we like to have a little bit stronger colony Uh, to to, uh, take care of the hive as well as take care of the almonds.
0: And those larger frame colonies, they certainly do a a much better job of pollination. Wasn't there a 1970s study about colony size and pollen collection, and the eight-frame colony did three times as much pollination work as a four-frame colony?
7: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, When they they compared colony strength back in that study, uh, they found that... uh, Uh, that eight frames of bees in a, in a bee box collected three times as much pollen as a four frame colony. So, uh, really you want to be in that, in that six, eight, uh, ten frame range. And we know that if you have more than twelve frames of bees, of course, that's, that would have to be a, 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 Double decker hive, you know, with a, a, a box above the other one to fit 12 frames in there. But anything above 12 frames doesn't provide any additional uh, pollination benefits. So that sweet spot is probably around eight frames, uh, eight frames of bees per hive. And uh, when we say frames of bees per hive, what we're talking about is is bees that have uh, an active uh, brood nest where they've got a good queen that's uh, laying eggs and they have open open cells with developing brood in there uh that the larval bees uh require pollen uh to be fed by the nurse bees that are in the hive and so you want to have a, an active brood nest with open cells where the nurse bees are feeding them pollen and that puts a demand on the on the field bees to go out and collect pollen in the almond orchard and that helps to uh get more cross pollination done in the field do
0: those bees need to warm up uh, with maybe some sort of blooming cover crop first before they pursue the almonds?
7: Well, uh, cover crops, uh, it's difficult to get cover crops to bloom ahead of almonds because almonds are one of the first blooming you know, crops in the state. But there are some covers, uh, particularly some of the yellow mustards that you might see blooming in January a little bit ahead of uh, almond bloom. And if if possible, uh, if you can get uh, mustard established and get it to bloom ahead of almonds, then when the beekeepers bring their bees into an almond orchard around the first of February or the last week of January, um, they they might have something to go out and forage on before the almond orchard comes into bloom, and that that helps improve their um, that helps improve their diet, gives them a, bit, a little bit more diversity in in the pollen that they can collect. And that can help strengthen uh, the honeybees as well.
0: What is your current recommendation for hives per acre?
7: Well, normally we like to see two to three hives per acre, uh, eight-frame colonies uh, to to have optimum pollination and uh, and nut set in the orchard, that's a you know that's a significant investment for the for the almond grower. Prices for honeybees are you know ranging anywhere from 170 to maybe 190 dollars a hive uh, for the pollination service. You know it's a big investment for the almond grower and and a big income for the beekeeper. So uh, we want to make sure we have strong colonies and and are in that two to three hive range per acre to uh, get the best set.
0: Speaking of valuable bees, they're a target of thieves uh, currently. And uh, I guess what should be needed is uh, some sort of regulation for marking those uh, bee boxes with some sort of ID. Yeah,
7: that's something that the beekeepers should be paying attention to because, um, you know, there have been uh, honeybee colony thefts where where a uh, beekeeper will put bees out and come back and find out that his beehives are just gone and somebody has stolen them. And one of the things a beekeeper can do is he can uh, brand uh, the beehive with a uh, with a number that is registered with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Um, and that at least would help uh, recover the uh, beehives if they were stolen. Uh, so that's one thing the beekeepers can do. Uh, the other thing is that, um, in, at least in the north state, in the northern Sacramento Valley, where we have a uh, this b- a bee breeding industry that has uh, uh, produces strong colonies and produces uh, uh, nuke uh, colonies for shipping to other parts of the United States, we have a tri-county bee notification service for the counties of Butte, Glen, and Tehama, where, uh, the, the beekeeper can be, uh, registered with the local county ag commissioner's office, uh, and then, uh, to be contacted if there are any, any pesticide applications going on in any fields or orchards uh, nearby where the bees are located if the beekeeper informs the ag commissioner. So that's a, another good way where the beekeepers can um, help to make sure that their honeybee colonies are, are protected.
0: What about pest problems uh, with bees? What are some strategies for beekeepers and maybe farmers tending to bees uh, to avoid perhaps mites or fungal diseases?
7: Yeah, the you know the honeybees have been under a lot of pressure with uh, with various diseases and um, and parasitic mites, and that uh, tends to weaken the bees, that uh, can weaken the colony, and and if uh, they're not controlled, the beehive colony can die out over the winter uh, because of the stress created by by some of those uh, uh, parasites and diseases. So the beekeepers really have to pay attention to that. They got to monitor their hives, uh, look at. Uh, what's happening in the honeybee colony, and then make sure they uh, treat to control the varroa parasitic mite, which is probably the worst pest uh, that they face. That's a parasitic mite that gets on the back of the bee and sucks the bee's blood, and of course that weakens the honeybee, and it causes you know premature death and, and weakness. They also transmit a virus, which is a, a serious thing. There's a deformed wing virus that can be transmitted by varroa mites, and uh, and that that can uh, weaken the colony further. So you've got to make sure that you're controlling the mites in your beehives. That's something the beekeepers got to do. And, of course, then there are some other fungus diseases, uh, nosema, which is a gut fungus that uh, can also uh, make the bees sick, kind of like a dysentery for us.
0: We have heard in the news over the years about colony collapse disorder of bees. Uh, Fingers have been pointed in all sorts of directions as to the cause. Uh, Last I heard, there was no known single cause what's the latest research you know about colony collapse disorder
7: yeah that's no that's exactly right um uh fred the colony collapse disorder, the disorder that has been in the media a lot uh is something that that doesn't have a single cause there's been a tremendous amount of research looking at why beehives uh, do collapse and and why the bees just kind of disappear from the colony which is what characterizes that colony collapse um and essentially, they, they feel that uh, that there are many factors involved in, in the colony collapse. And one of them would be a nutritional stress where there's not enough um, diversity in the pollen available to the honeybees uh, as they go through the season. Uh, others, of course, would be pesticide stress if they run into um, pesticide uh, applications in the field that might either uh, weaken the uh, weaken the bees, or they might bring back pollen uh, that has some contamination that gets fed to the larval honeybees, and then that weakens the colony and can cause uh, death of of some of the larvae before they even develop into an adult bee so there 's some things like that that are a problem, um, and certainly um, you know weather that keeps them inside uh, and not able to go out and forage can stress the colony so there 's a lot of things that um, that are being looked at, the deformed wing virus, and there's some other viruses that attack honeybees. So as they looked into it, they found that there were many, many factors that seemed to contribute to overall stress in a beehive and that tended to uh, cause the hive to get weaker and maybe die off over the winter.
0: And the future of bees, does it look good?
7: Yeah, I think, uh, I think the future for honeybees, uh, looks very good. We have some excellent beekeepers, uh, in, in Northern California that are part of this bee breeding industry. Uh, they, their business relies on having strong colonies and multiplying those colonies so that they can sell packaged bees to other beekeepers across the United States. Um, they do queen rearing and then sell packages of bees along with queens. Uh, to establish new colonies in some of the areas where it's really difficult to keep bees going in the in the northern part of the United States, where it's much colder during the winter, uh, they don't overwinter as well there. We have an important industry here in Northern California for the rest of the country, and uh, and certainly it's you know it's it's critical for our almond pollination as well.
0: Joe Connell, Butte County Cooperative Extension. Thanks for a bit of your time
7: today. Uh, well, you're certainly welcome, and it was my pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.